0: Welcome to the house podcast. We want to encourage you wherever you're at today, reach out or email us at any time. And we hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, good to be with you. And yeah, as Matt said, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, What a beautiful fall season. We have had the most beautiful fall season. People come to Kelowna for the summer uh, but they're missing out, because it's been more beautiful this fall, and hope that you get some time to enjoy that this Thanksgiving weekend. Um, as Matt mentioned, my name's Oliver, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm excited to continue in our series called The Great Invitation. We've been sort of exploring what it means to follow Jesus, to sort of dig into his invitation to his disciples to come follow me. That is where Jesus starts his ministry. He doesn't start with a say this prayer or believe this doctrine. He says come follow me. And so we're exploring what that means to kind of sit at his feet because we too are, are invited to follow him. He offers us the exact same invitation. And so this morning we're gonna turn to Mark chapter 10 as we continue in this series. And the context for the, the text that we have this morning, Jesus is with his disciples, and he's uh, preparing them for his death. He's actually, he's telling them, he's predicting his death. He's saying, hey, we're gonna go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be arrested and beaten and whipped and, and crucified. He's, he's actually he's spelling it all out for them, what's going to happen. And we get this very interesting text right after that. He's We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them all together and said, You know I wonder if you remember growing up what your sort of childhood dream was. When you were just a kid, all kids have some sort of thing, you know, and it's like, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And most kids, if they're really young, they have like three things, right? It's like policeman, fireman, or teacher. Like they, that's all they got. That's like their frame of reference. But as you grow up, it, it expands, right? And you begin to dream about, what am I gonna do with my life? and for me, it was a professional soccer player, of course, as you can tell. You're like, what? Uh, I, I played soccer growing up. I was like, the only thing I was really good at was like, I was, I'm really, I'm a fast runner, right? That's like, that's what I have to my name. I can run really fast in a straight line, which is like, that'll get you to like a certain level until you actually have to start like, you know, using your feet. But, but I wanted to be a, a, a professional soccer player. And isn't it funny how as kids, we always wanna be the best. Like, what kid wants to be, you know, a hockey player? What kid wants to be like an average hockey player? It's like, no, of course, you wanna be the best ever, like the best there ever was. From an early age, somehow we, we, we early on begin to associate like significance or greatness with being the best, kind of climbing up, you know, being the top of our class or the best at some sort of profession. And we all have a desire to be great. It, it, it might take a different shape and form, but each of us have a desire for greatness. Uh, and that's not all a bad thing. Uh, we don't want our lives just to be meaningless, to count for nothing. We, want, we wanna leave an imprint on life around us. We wanna make some sort of contribution to the world that we live in, and we are this message is sort of reinforced all around us with with these slogans like "Make your life count" or you know "Live your best life" or whatever other you know slogan you want to fill in the blank with. It's why we 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 love to read, at least for me, the the, the Forbes lists like top 50, you know most successful, most influential, most, you know, youngest leaders who make the most money. Like, we care about who's on that spectrum for some reason. We, it, it draws our attention. And we still kind of associate, uh, you know, business success with greatness, you know, net worth or that kind of thing. But that's sort of changing in the in the world we live in today because Greatness now, we have this whole new kind of field of, of online platforms that we now associate greatness with, um, particularly for younger generations. A study from 2020 revealed that one in three millennials, my generation, want to be famous online. They wanna, they wanna be known online, they wanna have a platform. For Gen Z, or if you're Canadian, Gen Z, uh, would like to be an influencer online, like to have some sort of platform online where they can influence the world around them. Uh, For younger people in particular, greatness takes the shape of your social media platforms, the influence you have online, how many people follow you or like or subscribe or share or that whole thing. Even the word influencer is kind of an interesting thought experiment just to sort of think through what that word means. But while the paths to greatness have changed and will change again, the desire for greatness, to be known, to be significant, to have some sort of value in the eyes of other people has not, and we see the same desire from Jesus' closest companions in this text. James and John come to Jesus and they say this, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Don't you love that? Like the boldness. They're just like, Jesus, be a genie in the bottle for me, please. And Jesus goes along with it. He says, what do you want? And they say to him, and I love the way the NLT version puts it, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right, one on your left. And I imagine James and John are like, they're like whispering. They're like, should we really ask him? Okay, let's, let's ask him. And they like pull him aside because the rest of the 10 are elsewhere. So not only is this kind of a bold, audacious request, just think about the context. Jesus has just told his disciples he's, he's gonna die. He's, he's preparing them for his death. And he, he actually goes into some of the details. I'm gonna be whipped, I'm gonna be beaten, I'm gonna be flogged, I'm gonna be crucified. And immediately, right after, they come with this request. It's like, the Bible is so honest. Like, imagine you tell someone you're terminally ill, and they say, hey, can I get your car after you're gone? You're like, (laughs) wrong timing. Just not the right timing. That is kind of what's going on here. Jesus is like, I'm gonna die. And they're like, can we, like, you know, benefit from this somehow? He's like, you're missing it. But it's interesting because James and John were already part of Jesus's inner circle. Remember, Jesus, he had the 12, he has kind of the crowds, he has also this, this inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. I don't know where Peter is here, but James and John come to Jesus, and they're already part of the inner circle. They're, they're in this kind of a little bit more exclusive club where they're, they're privy to some of the conversations Jesus wouldn't have with the rest of them. They've kind of tasted what greatness tastes like, to to be associated with greatness close to Jesus, and they like it, and they want it to continue. But in this text, we get one of the clearest examples of how upside down and backwards the kingdom of God is to the kingdom of this world. Because the other 10 realize it, and they're angry, and Jesus turns to then the 12 of them, and he says this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. It's kind of a, it doesn't quite translate, but it's sort of a pejorative statement Jesus is saying. It's almost like you could translate it as they they act as tyrants. You know how the Roman rulers in our world you know, act as tyrants. They, they put people under them. They put people in subordination under them. They, they rule, they exercise their authority over them. And he's giving them this picture, like here's how the world does it. You know how it's done. You see it each and every day. And then he says four words that I wanna draw your attention to this morning that are kind of like his thesis statement that sum up this whole text. He says this. Not so with you, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not so with you, it's not a suggestion, it's not a question, it's a statement of fact that for those who follow Jesus, power and authority, are they operate differently. We, we have a different grid, we have a different metrics, we steward it in a different way altogether. In the kingdom of God, it looks different. At, at the beginning of 2020, I uh, finished a Master of Arts in Leadership degree from Trinity Western. And um, one of the reasons I was sort of drawn to that degree uh, was because I finished my, uh, my undergrad, which was in biblical studies, and um, I had all this kind of biblical information in my brain. Uh, I'd studied, you know, like theology and doctrine, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I felt very kind of equipped in that way, but um, felt like there was just a gap in my own personal leadership because leadership doesn't, uh, Bible studies don't always translate to being a good leader. Um, And so I felt like I needed to go and get more training in how to be a good leader. And I was looking into a program that kind of fit what I thought good leadership looked like. And there are all sorts of models and strategies and ideas about how to be a good leader. It's a very popular field. All sorts of books, both inside and outside the church are written. But most of them Uh, don't approach leadership from kind of a biblical framework, they approach leadership from a business framework. Um, Most leadership resources are how to be a good leader, equals how to grow a big business or make a lot of money, which is not a bad thing. Um, but just for me, I'm like, that's not really where my head is at, how to you know make a bunch of money. And so I was drawn to the philosophy of leadership that uh, Trinity Western had, which was based on, uh, it's called Transformational Servant Leadership, or TSL, as we called it. And it's rooted in this text, but also more than that, just in the life of Jesus himself and I wanna share just briefly some of what I learned and just kind of took away as it relates to our text here in Mark. Um, Most traditional leadership structures look something like this. It's kind of a pyramid structure. And this is business language because it makes the most sense to most of us, but it's, you've got your employees on the bottom, you've got your managers, you've got your executives, uh, and you've got your your kind of elite group of CEOs, or, you know, fill in the blank with different language, depending on what organization or what field you're in. If it's education, you know, there's different words and titles that we might put into those places. But the idea is that as you go up the the pyramid, um, the group gets more exclusive right? There's the most employees at the bottom. There's the fewest CEOs or the kind of elite group at the top. And as you go up, you get more and more power and control and authority. Um, It's what would be kind of called like a top-down authority structure, where those at the top, command and control, come from the top down. The higher you go up, the more exclusive the group is and the more control and authority you have. And the general idea is that employees work and serve under a manager who works and serves under a, you know, executive who works and serves under a CEO, and if it all works together, boom, you've got a really successful business, hopefully. Um, It doesn't always work that way, as you know, but that's kind of the thinking. It it, it runs kind of upwards. It's why we have these phrases like uh, climbing the corporate ladder, or working your way up those phrases indicate that the goal is to work your way up no one wants to stay at the bottom uh, as we will often say like the bottom and the top we have this kind of framework and those at the very top benefit the most right those are the very top of a company think like Jeff Bezos or I don't know Mark Zuckerberg or just think like big picture those at the very top usually get the most benefits from the company. And this isn't all bad. This isn't a critique necessarily of your business. If you have a business that looks like this. Um, This is often the most effective and efficient way to operate a business and to make money or build a brand, or whatever it is that you're doing, but however effective and efficient this framework is for leadership, we have to come to terms with the fact that this is not the framework Jesus uses in his leadership. This is not the framework Jesus gives us as his followers. For Jesus, the pyramid gets flipped upside down. It looks something more like this. Uh, uh, Though you may still have some of the same titles or roles within an organization, the trajectory is upside down. It runs the opposite way. For Jesus, rather than command and control coming from the top down... Those at the top are flipped up to the bottom, and they serve and support those who would traditionally be at the bottom. The benefits go the opposite direction. See, what often goes wrong in a traditional kind of leadership structure is that uh, as you are trying to work your way up, people begin to only have value insofar as they help you go up. We start to value people based on whether they help us or hinder us from climbing up, from getting more power or authority or control. And we easily begin to believe other people are there to serve me. The higher I go, the easier it is to look down on those below me and imagine that they are there to serve my interests, my needs, because I'm a big deal, as Will Ferrell will say. I'm I'm, I'm the big cheese, I'm the big shot, like I call the shots, I have the power, and so those who are under me have to serve my agenda. You don't have to look far to see how easily this kind of power structure gets abused by unhealthy or narcissistic or just insecure leaders, uh, both inside and outside the church. This was the basis for like the Me Too movement a number of years ago. It was also the basis for the Church Too movement, which exposed a whole range of power abuse issues that we face within the church. But not so with Jesus. He envisions a different kind of structure that gets flipped on its head, where one's power and authority are directly correlated with one's willingness and ability to serve. See, if we hosted a leadership conference in Kelowna, uh, how to be a great leader, how to be an effective leader, how to build your brand in three quick steps, we would probably get quite a few people who are interested. And it's actually, it's so ironic, but we, we actually, with our denomination, we have, um, we have a leadership conference this week that Matt and Kenny and I are going to on Wednesday and Thursday. It's called Lead Forward. Uh, we have this conference that we're going to. We are drawn to leadership, but I can't imagine we would get the exact same response if we hosted a conference called How to Be a Great Servant, or or, or How to Be Humble. How many people are like, I'm there, get me signed up, (laughs) one. (laughs) But for Jesus, they are the same thing. They're the same conference. He's like, how to be a good leader? Come to my conference, how to be a good servant. They're the same thing in the mind and heart of Jesus. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The the, the reference here is to a household servant, a slave, one who is, is the lowest rank possible, who takes the lowest form of authority. And if you think back just even to Ed's message last week of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, if you remember in that story, Peter is offended by Jesus. He won't let him wash his feet at first because Jesus was assuming this low offensive rank. Like someone in Jesus' position would never go to that low. They would never clean someone's feet. That was for the slave. That was for the servant. And yet Jesus takes that position because in the kingdom of God, Leadership looks different, greatness looks different. The first are last, the last are first, the greatest are the ones who are the greatest servants. Robert Greenleaf is one of the first people who kind of coined the term servant leader, and he says it this way, good leaders must first become good servants. See, the problem is not power or authority or your title or your position itself. Maybe you are in a a position of authority with many people kind of under you. The problem is not your title, your leadership position. We all have some sort of influence on the world around us. Might be our family, our friends, our business. Um, That's not a bad thing. What Jesus is confronting here is our ambition for holding that power and authority and influence the disposition of our hearts. Am I in that position to benefit me, my agenda, and my desires, or am I there to help serve others? The reality is we're all a mix of both good and selfish ambition, aren't we? We're all a mix of good, godly ambition and selfish, ungodly ambition. you, you might have a desire to serve. I think we all do to some capacity. We wanna serve people, but if we can look good doing it, heck yeah, I'll take it, right? Like I wanna serve my community, I wanna serve our church, but if people notice me serving, I'll take it. It feels good, I kind of like it. There's a part of me that wants to be seen and noticed serving and I try my best to put that part of me to death but it is there no doubt and whether it's in leadership or just in general in life we are a mixed bag of ambition and motivation but for us who follow Jesus the invitation is to put to death the part of us that desires self-interest that desires a platform to be noticed and instead to, to feed the desire to benefit others, to make the driving ambition of our lives the benefit of other people. Because that is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. For Jesus, the greatness takes the shape of self-sacrifice, not self-interest. Looks like serving others, not serving myself. This is why we celebrate uh, some of the great you know, like saints of our faith, uh, or, or people in, in, in history who have sacrificed for the benefit of other people. William Wilberforce, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Dorothy Day, or Mother Teresa. We, we look up to these people not just because of the platform they had or even the the accomplishments that they had, what they did with their life, but the way they served, the disposition of their heart, the way they put the needs of others ahead of their own. So what does this mean for us? Because maybe you're not a leader, and you don't want to be a leader. You're like, just like this is not for me. I actually think, regardless of our position, our our, whether whether or not we have a fancy title, our employment status, our salary, uh, you know, where we work, all of that kind of thing, our sphere of influence online. I think there's a few things that we can glean from this text. First, uh, we cannot let culture define what greatness looks like. Don't take your cues from culture. I come back to Jesus' words here. Not so with you. For us, it is different. Greatness looks different than building a big brand or business. We can so easily fall into this temptation, this train of thought that to be great means I have to have X amount of dollars, X amount of employees under me, uh, X amount of followers online. We are not immune to this, and the church is not immune to this. Um, I hear people all the time who will talk about a, a pastor who grew a church, you know, it exploded. It was out of this world. Without knowing their character, their heart, how they serve, they're, just, they're great because they have a platform. They're great because they have a big church. We have to continually let Jesus redefine greatness for us. When I was in Bible college, I had some professors and friends uh, and mentors who were just a huge encouragement for me, Uh, the kind of people who just like pump your tires up until they like burst. Uh, We need those kinds of people in our lives, don't we? Like we need the kind of people who tell us you're amazing, you're gifted, you're unique, you're called, you're, you're, you're one of a kind. Like this is why we love when Ed preaches. And Ed is like the guy will just make you feel like a million bucks, even if you just like walk by him. You're like, I'm special, I'm unique. Like He just has a way about him that is just so encouraging. We need people like that. But maybe the best thing that ever happened to me, because I, I graduated and I had I, done quite well in, in Bible college, I had all these sorts of ideas of what God was gonna do, and was, the impact I would have for the kingdom. And the best thing that ever happened to me is I got a job window cleaning. I moved to Kelowna and I started cleaning people's windows and gutters. And, okay, there's two, there's two questions that always, always, always get asked anytime I mention window cleaning. Um, let me just address them. First, no, I did not work for men in kilts. I did not wear a <laughs> kilt all day. Um, if that's your thing, that's fine. Uh, that just was not my thing. Different company. And secondly, no, I did not trapeze down, like, the sky rises. That, that was, like, a very exclusive thing that window cleaners do. I did not do that. I did mostly residential. Okay. At first... I actually loved, I loved what I did. I was, you know, I was in Bible college before, so I was just like, my brain was just like full of information and theology and all that kind of stuff. And so I was working with my hands, I was working long hours, I was, uh, you know, working hard, trying to pay off student debt, and I actually felt like it was right where God wanted me to be, window cleaning. But the longer I worked there, the, the, the more I started to feel the kind of pressure from the world around me that, Window cleaning wasn't good enough. And people would ask questions like, Are you still just window cleaning? And they didn't mean it as like a, a dig, but anytime you add the word just in front of someone's vocation, it just stings. Like, Are you still just doing that same old job? You're like, Yeah, like I am. I'm still just cleaning people's windows and gutters. Once we started to get into the colder months, uh, you know, I started to keep an eye out for jobs in churches because I thought, that's what I'm called to do. That's what I'm going to do. God has big dreams for me, all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't sort of desperate to just find any old church, but I was, I was trying to keep an eye out. Is there, is there a job? Is there a position in a church that's just going to, you know, I'm going to just plop into it's going to be perfect for me and for the church. Um, but nothing came up. And as it got colder and colder in the company I worked for, I know some window cleaning companies will like do, you know, snow removal or something else in the winter. Um, my company didn't do that. And so most of the employees went on EI for the winter. And so they just kind of took three or four months off. They got laid off every year. And so I did that. I went on EI. And so here I am, like in the dead of winter, it's cold. I'm waking up on EI, no job, and I'm just like pouring a bowl of cereal, wondering what the heck God is doing with my life, reevaluating my calling, reevaluating all of my Bible college years, studying who knows what, wondering if if I had made a mistake, and feeling the weight of other people's opinions about my significance, my value. I did that for two years, and it was so humbling and so hard. Um, each day I felt like I could, I could feel God like stripping away my pride, my self-interest, layer by layer, which it was painful until I finally came to the place where I just was like, if this is all I do with my life is like clean generally wealthy people's windows so that they can see their you know, view of the lake, that is okay. Like if that's all I do with my life, that is okay, I don't need a title, I don't need a fancy, you know, thing attached to my name because somehow I just felt like God humbled me to the point where I said this, if this is what God has for me, that will be okay because what looks foolish in the eyes of the world so often looks like greatness in the eyes of Jesus. And you might be working a job that is looked down upon by society, but you might be right where God wants you to be Right where God wants to use you in his kingdom, we cannot let culture define greatness, otherwise we will strive for some sort of external validation of our worth. Greatness looks different in the kingdom of God. And if you want to know whether your ambition is good or selfish or whether they're like, what kind of ratio for you that is, um, just take away the title and the paycheck and whatever other external benefits you get from your position or your status, just take away those benefits. Is your heart still in it? Do you still have the same passion to serve the people, to work the job, to do the thing that you do? Lastly, when Jesus talks about servanthood, he's not just talking about meeting an immediate need or volunteering once in a while out of obligation. Though, like, this is not like a big setup for you to volunteer after the church. Like, though if you want to volunteer, you know, you can. Um, It's more than that, it's more than just like serve once in a while. The kind of servanthood Jesus is talking about here is a commitment we pursue with our lives. It's more of like a lifestyle than a one-off. It's a lifestyle of how we order our lives to seek the benefit of other people. It's a disposition of our hearts. And I think this text ought to challenge us, whether we're leaders or not, with this question, is my life marked by service? Can you identify a theme in your life when you zoom way out? Is there a consistent theme, a thread of your life, of other people benefiting from whatever it is that your life looks like? Does the sum of your life, is the general disposition of your life to benefit you and your agenda and your desires and your priorities, or do other people factor into that equation? Does it elevate you or does it elevate those around you? Jesus lived his whole life that way. His whole life was marked by that kind of servanthood, and it culminates with his death on the cross. He says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Is my life marked by service? Jesus lived that way, and as we who follow him, we are invited to live the same way. to to be marked by a commitment to serve others, to seek the well-being, the flourishing of others, often at the expense of our own, because that is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your example to us. Jesus, we thank you for the example we get in scripture and in your life, your death, your resurrection of what it means to be great in your eyes. It's not about our title, our paycheck, our status, our following online, but about how we serve. And so God, we first on this Thanksgiving weekend thank you for being that kind of God for being a God who stoops so, so low. You take the lowest place for our benefit. And God, I pray that as we reflect on that, you would compel us. You would give us a holy ambition to serve others, to make the general disposition of our lives and our hearts to seek the well-being of those around us pray that you would make us into that kind of community in Jesus name